The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. How long have you known? Pigeon, I need the carriage this instant. Since the night Mrs. Jenny has offered to take us to London. Why did you not tell me? Lucy told me in the strictest confidence. I could not break my word. But Edward loves you! No promises. He tried to tell me about Lucy. He cannot marry her. Would you have him treat her even worse than Willoughby has treated you? No. But nor would I have him marry where he does not love. Edward made his promise a long time ago, long before he met me. Though he may harbour some regret, I believe that he will be happy in the knowledge that he did his duty and kept his word. After all... After all that is... Bewitching in the idea of one's happiness entirely depending on one person. It is not always possible. We must accept. Edward will marry Lucy. And you and I will go home. Always resignation and acceptance. Always prudence and honour and duty. Eleanor, where is your heart? What do you know of my heart? What do you know of anything but your own suffering? For weeks, Marianne, I've had this pressing on me without being at liberty to speak of it to a single creature. It was forced on me by the very person whose prior claims ruined all my hopes. I have endured her exaltation again and again whilst knowing myself to be divided from Edward forever. Believe me, Marianne, had I not been bound to silence, I could have produced proof enough of a broken heart even for you. your heart, Eleanor. And Eleanor says, I have it. I have it. I have it, Marianne. I have it. And it's broken. That's sense talking to sensibility. In a sense, no pun intended. It's Emma Thompson and Kate Winslet in one of the best adaptations of a novel I have ever seen. It makes me weep. And guess who? That's 1995 Sense and Sensibility. Guess who's weeping in that scene? Speaking of weeping, is it the one with the broken heart? Sense? No, it's not. It's sensibility, or as we might say today, passion. The character given to emotion and who believes in strong gestures and following one's feelings and damn the consequences. She's weeping because she and her sister have quarreled and because, as she suspects, things are not always going to work out for her, and especially in this case, for her sister. Her sister, the commonsensical one, the logical one, the budget-minded one, who lives in straightened circumstances and has measures of duty and honor and prudence and pride and empathy and generosity and decency, 
But because of those things, those qualities, she might not ever know love. I almost said she might not find love, but that's the rub, isn't it? That's the cause of Marianne's tears. Eleanor has found it, but she might not get to have it. Used up, washed up, wrung out, a has-been, a spinster at 19, and her sister weeps for her. But don't worry. We can find happier outcomes in life and in literature. Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility, today on The History of Literature. Hey, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Very happy, terrifically happy, awfully happy you're here with me today. I'll be sensed your sensibility anytime, dear listener, and vice versa. The world is awful. Let's cling to one another as the chaos continues, and let's hope for the best. So, we have a great novel today. This is just a Mount Rushmore kind of event, these novels of Jane Austen. They are Hall of Famers, aren't they? Who's on your Mount Rushmore? Shakespeare and Tolstoy and Jane Austen and choose a fourth. Maybe Dante would be mine. That's my four, maybe. Chekhov, this is the creme de la creme, the good stuff. Jane Austen today. And yet, because I am a humble idiot in the 21st century and my mind is battered by all kinds of crazy connections, as I read this novel again, and watch the film again in preparation for this podcast episode, I kept thinking about, dot, 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 Bill Belichick, the coach of the New England Patriots. How random is that? Well, let me explain. Belichick is hes kind of a genius, but nobody has ever really explained why he's been so good. hes There have been a lot of theories, and he's, okay, here's a few. He's been caught cheating a few times, and he had a great quarterback for a couple of decades. But set those things aside. He also had a problem. Think about the success that he's had with this obstacle in place. If your team does well in football, you draft low the following year, and all the best players are gone by the time you draft. So it's hard to repeat. It's hard to sustain excellence because you keep drafting players who are not quite as highly rated as the others. And yet, Belichick managed to be at the top for a long time. And he also had this quirk. Once in a while, he would cut one of his best players, someone who was a valuable asset to the team. Suddenly, he was gone. And yet, Bill Belichick, in spite of this quirk, kept winning. Well, one explanation I heard, and this is the parallel I want to draw to Jane Austen, is that Bill Belichick has this ability to see his players as their salaries, and he assesses them constantly in football as you may know there's a salary cap. You only get to spend a certain amount each year on your full roster. And if you have some great players like Tom Brady, who are very expensive, you need to find some bargains too. And Belichick would look at a player and say, he's worth about $1.65 million a year, and we're paying him $1.2. That's good. He's a bargain. He might look at another player and say, well, we're paying this guy $1.8 million, and he's only worth $900,000. We all might watch a game and see a great player on the field 
And maybe that player is being paid $5 million. And for Belichick, he's not that, it's not that he's great. It's whether he's being underpaid or overpaid or properly paid. That $5 million salary might be a bargain or it might not be. That's why players were sometimes cut, even when they were good. Belichick was looking for bargains. And what struck me was that he wasn't saying, here's a guy who can make this many tackles or bench press this amount. It just was boiled down to the number. This guy is $500,000. This guy's a $2.2 million player. And that's why I thought of him when I was reading Jane Austen, where people and their prospects and their fortunes this is sort of like the world that Jane Austen seems to have lived in. People are attached to their money, and their value is based on their money, in a way. The Austens weren't themselves the landed gentry, but they were sort of in that class. They were near it. The pseudo-gentry, it's been called. In other words, they weren't living off of investments, but earned income. Her father was the rector of an Anglican parish. They were descended from wealth. They had wealthy cousins who had inherited fortunes. I bet if you spent some time with Bill Belichick, you'd start to see players as 3.1 million or 800,000 or whatever. And when you read Jane Austen, you fall right into her mode as well. Here's someone who has 5,000 pounds earning 200 a year. Or his investments plus his estate bring in 10,000 a year. In the video game version of Jane Austen that I wish someone would develop so I could play and marry all these characters off to one another. In this video game, in my mind, we hover over a character and we see their fortune pop up. 500 pounds a year. Hello, respectable. 5,000 pounds a year. Hold my bonnet. Pride and Prejudice opens famously with a sentence that I always read with a bit of tongue-in-cheek. That's my reading of it. It runs, uh, you know it. it, it runs the course from a single man to his money to his marriage, the Jane Austen arc, right there in a single sentence in the opener. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. One of the best first lines ever, a line to etch into marble. The opening of Sense and Sensibility is a bit more workmanlike, but don't sleep on the poetry of it. First sentence is, quote, The family of Dashwood had long been settled in Sussex, end quote. It's practically iambic pentameter. And what do we know here from this unassuming little sentence? We don't hear that it's the Dashwoods or the Dashwood girls but the family of Dashwood. A little more august, isn't it? A little more pride there. And it's not the Dashwoods were from Sussex, but had long been settled in. Things were sailing along for the family of Dashwood. They were on cruise control. This is how things were and should be. They had earned their spot here. They have dignity, this family of Dashwood, and they are settled. And now... There has been a disruption. That's the kernel that starts our novel. And the disruption is a little bit of law and a lot of bit of money, and it changes everything. That's what we get in the next few chapters. The impact of England's primogeniture laws, which is a fancy way of saying that the inheritances go to the firstborn son, the wealth descends through the male line. In this case, 
Henry Dashwood, who's wealthy, has been married twice. He has a son from his first marriage and a wife and three daughters from his second and current marriage. And here's the problem. I say he's wealthy. He hasn't been wealthy long. His uncle died about a year ago. Henry inherits the, the estate, and the estate is headed eventually for the son, John. Well, Henry sees this happening. He decides he'd better provide for his current wife, his second wife, and his three daughters from that marriage, Eleanor, Marianne, and Margaret. But then he himself falls ill. He only lives for about a year after running this estate. And when he dies, soon after, John and his wife, Fanny, immediately inherit the estate. John is an amiable sword who feels generous toward his half-sisters, but Fanny is not so amiable, and the two of them talk one another out of generosity. It's so common, even today. I know many, many divorced couples who have done something similar. I would even say it's almost the rule rather than the exception. The spouse feels generous toward the ex and kids, and the new love says, well, maybe that's a little too generous. Or maybe the new love doesn't even need to say that, but the spouse feels it. Oh, well, they can do okay on their own, right? And in the book, John and Fanny have a child of their own, which complicates things. Who knows what the young child might need someday? Young Harry, you might regret giving so much away now if Harry should need it down the road. A lot can happen in life, and money comes in handy. The 1995 movie, which I'm going to talk about a lot, by the way, removes the child from the picture, which which makes John and Fanny a little more uh, odious, I should say, a little more subject to their greed. And the movie portrays this all-too-human impulse beautifully. I was going to play the clip, but then I went back to the novel, and it made me want to share this exchange with you, because... As good as a movie adaptation is, there's really nothing quite like Jane Austen when she's at her best. So usually, ordinarily, I would read some of the stretches where we're talking about love, the speeches about love, the speeches between the sisters, where they're developing their understanding with one another or correcting their misunderstandings. But in this case, I'm going to read chapter two, which is where Henry Dashwood has died, John Dashwood has inherited the Norland estate, and Mrs. John Dashwood, his wife Fanny, is trying to talk him out of his impulse, which is to honor his father's dying wishes by being generous to his father's widow and daughters. Now, as I read this, I want you to listen for the humor and the psychological insight, the observational powers, and the prose, the gentleness with which this is all conveyed, but the sharpness of the insight. This is written by a woman more than 200 years ago. She was in her early 20s when she began writing this novel, and she revised it later. She was maybe 30, just past 30, when she was putting this together. Kind of incredible, at least to me. So here we go. This is John and Fanny talking about what it's going to mean if they give in to John's impulse, which is his dying father has said, take care of my daughters. And John says, how about 3,000 pounds? That should help. I'm going to give them that and they can live from it. So here's Mrs. John Dashwood, which is Fanny. Mrs. John Dashwood did not at all approve of what her husband intended to do for his sisters. 
To take 3,000 pounds from the fortune of their dear little boy would be impoverishing him to the most dreadful degree. She begged him to think again on the subject. How could he answer it to himself to rob his child, and his only child too, of so large a sum? And what possible claim could the Miss Dashwoods, who were related to him only by half-blood, which she considered as no relationship at all, have on his generosity to so large an amount? It was very well known that no affection was ever supposed to exist between the children of any man by different marriages, and why was he to ruin himself and their poor little Harry by giving away all his money to his half-sisters? It was my father's last request to me, replied her husband, that I should assist his widow and daughters. He did not know what he was talking of. I dare say, ten to one, but he was light-headed at the time. Had he been in his right senses, he could not have thought of such a thing as begging you to give away half your fortune from your own child. He did not stipulate for any particular sum, my dear Fanny. He only requested me, in general terms, to assist them, and make their situation more comfortable than it was in his power to do. Perhaps it would have been as well if he had left it wholly to myself. He could hardly suppose I should neglect them. But as he required the promise, I could do, not do less than give it. At least, I thought so at the time. The promise, therefore, was given and must be performed. Something must be done for them whenever they leave Norland and settle in a new home. Well, then, let something be done for them, but that something need not be three thousand pounds. Consider, she added, that when the money is once parted with, it never can return. Your sisters will marry, and it will be gone forever, if, indeed, it could be restored to our poor little boy. Why, to be sure, said her husband very gravely, that would make great difference. The time may come when Harry will regret that so large a sum was parted with. If he should have a numerous family, for instance, it would be a very convenient addition. To be sure it would. Perhaps, then, it would be better for all parties if the sum were diminished one half. Five hundred pounds would be a prodigious increase to their fortunes. Oh, beyond anything great, what brother on earth would do half so much for his sisters, even if really his sisters? And, as it is, only half blood. But you have such a generous spirit. I would not wish to do anything mean, he replied. One had rather on such occasions, do too much than too little. No one, at least, can think I have not done enough for them, even themselves. They can hardly expect more. There is no knowing what they may expect, said the lady, but we are not to think of their expectations. The question is what you can afford to do. Certainly, and I think I may afford to give them five hundred pounds apiece, as it is, without any addition of mine, they will each have about three thousand pounds on their mother's death, a very comfortable fortune for any young woman. To be sure it is, and indeed, it strikes me that they can want no addition at all. They will have ten thousand pounds divided amongst them. If they marry, they will be sure of doing well, and if they do not, they may all live very comfortably together on the interest of ten thousand pounds. That is very true, and therefore I do not know whether, upon the whole, it would not be more advisable to do something for their mother while she lives, rather than for them. 
Something of the annuity kind, I mean. My sisters would feel the good effects of it as well as herself. A hundred a year would make them all perfectly comfortable. His wife hesitated a little, however, in giving her consent to this plan. To be sure, said she, it is better than parting with fifteen hundred pounds at once. But then, if Mrs. Dashwood should live fifteen years, we shall be completely taken in. Fifteen years, my dear Fanny, her life cannot be worth half that purchase. Certainly not, but if you observe, people always live forever when there is an annuity to be paid them, and she is very stout and healthy and hardly forty. An annuity is a very serious business. It comes over and over every year, and there is no getting rid of it. You are not aware of what you are doing. I have known a great deal of the trouble of annuities, for my mother was clogged with the payment of three to old superannuated servants by my father's will, and it is amazing how disagreeable she found it. Twice every year these annuities were to be paid, and then there was the trouble of getting it to them, and then one of them was said to have died, and afterwards it turned out to be no such thing. My mother was quite sick of it. Her income was not her own, she said, with such perpetual claims on it, and it was the more unkind in my father, because otherwise the money would have been entirely at my mother's disposal, without any restriction whatever. It has given me such an abhorrence of annuities that I am sure I would not pin myself down to the payment of one for all the world. It is certainly an unpleasant thing, replied Mr. Dashwood, to have those kind of yearly drains on one's income. One's fortune, as your mother justly says, is not one's own. To be tied down to the regular payment of such a sum on every rent day is by no means desirable. It takes away one's independence. Undoubtedly, and after all, you have no thanks for it. They think themselves secure. You do no more than what is expected, and it raises no gratitude at all. If I were you, whatever I did should be done at my own discretion entirely. I would not bind myself to allow them anything yearly. It might be very inconvenient some years to spare a hundred or even fifty pounds from our own expenses. I believe you are right, my love. It will be better that there should be no annuity in the case. Whatever I may give them occasionally will be of far greater assistance than a yearly allowance, because they would only enlarge their style of living if they felt sure of a larger income, and would not be sixpence the richer for it at the end of the year. It will certainly be much the best way. A present of fifty pounds now and then will prevent their ever being distressed for money, and will, I think, be amply discharging my promise to my father." To be sure it will. Indeed, to say the truth, I am convinced within myself that your father had no idea of your giving them any money at all. The assistance he thought of, I dare say, was only such as might be reasonably expected of you. For instance, such as looking out for a comfortable small house for them, helping them to move their things, and sending them presents of fish and game and so forth, whenever they are in season. I'll lay my life that he meant nothing farther. Indeed, it would be very strange and unreasonable if he did. Do but consider, my dear Mr. Dashwood, how excessively comfortable your mother-in-law and her daughters may live on the interest of seven thousand pounds, besides the thousand pounds belonging to each of the girls, which brings them in fifty pounds a year apiece. And, of course, they will pay their mother for their board out of it. Altogether, they will have five hundred a year amongst them, and what on earth can four women want for more than that? They will live so cheap, 
their housekeeping will be nothing at all. They will have no carriage, no horses, and hardly any servants. They will keep no company and can have no expenses of any kind. Only conceive how comfortable they will be, five hundred a year. I am sure I cannot imagine how they will spend half of it. And as to your giving them more, it is quite absurd to think of it. They will be much more able to give you something. Upon my word, said Mr. Dashwood, I believe you are perfectly right. My father certainly could mean nothing more by his request to me than what you say. I clearly understand it now, and I will strictly fulfill my engagement by such acts of assistance and kindness to them as you have described. When my mother removes into another house, my services shall be readily given to accommodate her as far as I can. Some little present of furniture, too, may be acceptable then. Certainly, returned Mrs. John Dashwood. But, however, one thing must be considered. When your father and mother moved to Norland, though the furniture of Stanhill was sold, all the china, plate, and linen was saved, and is now left to your mother. Her house will therefore be almost completely fitted up as soon as she takes it. That is a material consideration, undoubtedly. A valuable legacy indeed. And yet some of the plate would have been a very pleasant addition to our own stock here. Yes, and the set of breakfast china is twice as handsome as what belongs to this house. A great deal too handsome, in my opinion, for any place they can ever afford to live in. But, however, so it is. Your father thought only of them. And I must say this, that you owe no particular gratitude to him, nor attention to his wishes, for we very well know that if he could, he would have left almost everything in the world to them. This argument was irresistible. It gave to his intentions whatever of decision was wanting before, and he finally resolved that it would be absolutely unnecessary if not highly indecorous, to do more for the widow and children of his father than such kind of neighborly acts as his own wife pointed out. End quote. <laughs> it's so good. The way these two talk themselves down from 3,000 to half that to occasional gifts to <laughs> let's just take their stuff. <laughs> They're lucky we don't take their stuff and look at how selfish the father was by not even considering us. It gave <laughs> that look at humanity, the comical nature of our greed, but it's so, it's greedy. It's comical, but it's human too, isn't it? Don't we all do this? We say, if I win the lottery, I'll give it all away to charity. And then after we win, we say, well, charities probably have lots of overhead. Should I really reward them for that? Aren't I just encouraging their corruption and waste? On and on we go, and in the end, we're not just selfish. We manage to convince ourselves that our selfishness is actually the best course of action for all involved, for us, for our family, and even for the world at large, for the others whom we deprive. We have helped them by not helping them. But for the Dashwoods, this means that they are now visitors in their own home, and they have too much pride to swallow that. Pride, but almost no money. The four of them have to live on a combined 500 pounds a year, which is not enough to rent anywhere suitable nearby. They cut down their staff. Eleanor is the budget-minded one, the practical one, even more so than her mother, which is, who is a bit more like Marianne, the passionate and impulsive second sister. Fortunately, they are invited to live in a cottage near a relative of theirs, which sounds 
lowly like a shack or a hut. Except that when you see the cottage in the film, anyway, let me back up a second. When I bought a house, the one I live in now, I was terrified. How could I afford to buy a house? I was as poor as the Dashwoods or more. I was poorer, I think. I owed so much money from student loans. I was up to my eyeballs in debt and I had two little ones, mouths to feed, and it just seemed like a house was unaffordable. And yet I had this dream that they needed a basement and a backyard, a little space for boys to breathe and run around and break things and do all of that. And so we found this house. It wasn't new. It was quite old, but it was nice, kind of quaint and charming, had character. And I was still on the fence and my wife and I were struggling to pull the trigger on buying this house. And my wife sent a picture of it to her sister and her sister replied, oh, it's a Jane Austen house. And that was it. Yes, we could do it. Why not? A Jane Austen house? That's a dream come true. Why not live in a Jane Austen house? Of course. And so the four of us moved in. And then I watched Sense and Sensibility the other day. And these four people, when they get kicked out of their home and they have to move into this cottage, you see the cottage and it looks like my house, but it's about twice as big. It's a giant version of my Jane Austen house which made me laugh because I am rooting for the Dashwoods as underdogs in the book and in the movie. And here they <laughs> they have a couple servants. I don't have any. That's a little Jane Austen magic. It's seeing this father dying. His dying wish is to set up his daughters. He gets a promise from the brother to do that and the brother's wife interferes. And suddenly I, who worked like a dog to buy my house, I'm seeing them living in this house that's twice the size of mine, and I feel completely sorry for them. I am 100% on their side. I don't think at all here are some rich folks who could cut back a little bit. I think how absolutely awful that they've been forced to be visitors in their own house. This interloper Fanny turned them out and made them feel bad for living there. They deserve it and how plucky and courageous they are to go live in this cottage on their own. I hope things work out for them. I want them to win. So, this is how life goes for them, and how it goes for us, too. We might be good, we might be pure of heart and noble of character, we might be full of talents and ambition and hard work, but law and life have a way of interfering with that. In this case, the law of inheritance, this status of women and the early death of a husband and father. In our case, maybe it would be slightly different variables if we were transposing this into our own times. Maybe it would be someone has put all their money in Lehman Brothers before it crashed and and someone else has an illness that means that he or she can't work or whatever it is. Life presents obstacles. The Dashwood daughters and their mother are underdogs and unhappiness looms ahead. Unhappiness through no fault of their own. Unhappiness based on the vicissitudes of fate. The solution will be love if they can find it. We will turn to that eventually. But first, let's talk about two women separated by two centuries. We'll do that after this.
We are going to turn to love, but before we get there, let's look at two women. First, Jane Austen. Jane Austen was about 19 when she started writing the novel Eleanor and Marianne, the first draft of what would eventually become Sense and Sensibility. This was in 1795, 200 years exactly before the movie adaptation starring Emma Thompson, who, spoiler alert, is the other woman we're going to talk about. Eleanor and Marianne used the novel, used the epistolary form, a novel in letters, which was common throughout the 18th century. But as we've discussed in several other episodes of the history of literature, the form has strengths, but also severe limitations. And fiction and novels really took off once the narrative technique developed that would enable enable a narrator to dip into the minds of characters without the clanking machinery of letters being exchanged, or even quotation marks and she thought. And Jane Austen was a pioneer in this technique. If you're a fan of novels, you owe a lot to Jane Austen and her instincts and talent and artistry. In some ways, our ability to quickly identify with the psychology of a character is largely thanks to Jane. We are lucky that she also had her intelligence and humanity. The popularity of her novels is what helped the technique survive and prosper. Jane reworked Eleanor and Marianne, the novel, in November of 1797, but it was almost a decade later when she reworked it and finally submitted it to a publisher. She then paid for the production of it. It came out without her name on it. The front page says simply, Sense and Sensibility, a novel in three volumes by a lady. She took on the financial risk of bringing out the book. She paid for the printing costs and the advertising. She paid the publisher a commission for distribution and sales, and that allowed her to keep whatever profits remained for herself. The book sold out its first run of 750 copies and went into a second printing. By 1813, she was writing her brother that she had made 140 pounds. Jane published four books in her lifetime, earning herself 684 pounds. By one estimate, that's about $67,000 today. That's for all her books, what she earned in her lifetime, 67000 in today's dollars. She sold Pride and Prejudice for 110 pounds, or about $10,000. Imagine what that book has earned by now. So, just to give us a timeline here, sometime in 1795, probably, we know it was before 1796, based on some letters, probably 1795, she starts work on this early version of Sense and Sensibility, an epistolary novel called Eleanor and Marianne, named after the two sisters. Around Christmas time of this year, 1795, she meets Tom Lefroy, her Irish friend. We've covered this in depth in a couple of episodes, so we won't go through it here. But I wanted to point out that as she is drafting these books, Sense and Sensibility and then Pride and Prejudice, and reading them aloud to her family, she is also in the midst of flirtations and courtships and camaraderie and hopes both actual and dashed. Jane writes to her sister Cassandra, quote, I am almost afraid to tell you how my Irish friend and I behaved. Imagine to yourself everything most profligate and shocking in the way of dancing and sitting down together, end quote. That's Jane, right around this time. She starts Pride and Prejudice. She finishes that a few months later. It's called First Impressions. She still hasn't published anything, but she's reading these books aloud to her family as she writes. 
Imagine being one of those family members and listening to genius unfold like that, knowing that what you were hearing was funnier and sharper and more moving than many of the books on your shelf and maybe any of the books on your shelf. Jane's father tried to publish Pride and Prejudice, which was then called, still called First Impressions, though we don't know much about this effort. For example, we don't even know if Jane was aware that he had done that. In any case, the publishers sent it back, declined. Jane kept working on First Impressions, and eventually it was renamed Pride and Prejudice. And she was working. She started a third novel at this time called Northanger Abbey, and guess what? She was getting a bit older. I've just taken you from ages 21 to 25, roughly. Spinsterhood is looming by the wretched standards of the day, and Jane has confessed that she cannot get Tom Lafroy out of her mind, though that relationship has ended. Let's turn now to another woman, one of my heroes, Emma Thompson, the British actress and screenwriter, born in uh, 70, (laughs) maybe she wishes, born in 1959, the child of a pair of actors. She went to Cambridge, joined the Footlights, and was in a circle with Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie, both of whom have cameos in our story here. Hugh Laurie has a quick star turn in the movie Sense and Sensibility, a comic part as a put-upon curmudgeon, where he also gets to show a bit of humanity in a nice scene. Stephen Fry is not in the movie, but apparently he rescued the screenplay. He was an early expert in Apple computers. And when Emma Thompson lost what she had been working on, For something like three or four years, she called him up, he came over, and according to the reports, he retrieved the screenplay seven hours later. Now, poor Stephen Fry. Was he really an expert, or was he just one of those friends who was a little more expert than Emma Thompson was? Like, like in my case, I can't really fix a car, but when something goes wrong, I'll stick my head in there and poke around and watch videos and all of that and try to learn on the job. And in the end, maybe I get the car fixed. And my friend who called me might think of me as the expert, but really I've just been patient and willing to try. That's kind of my guess of what was happening here. I can't imagine that he was actually doing something for seven hours as an expert might have. It makes me think that Stephen Fry is probably quite a good friend to Emma Thompson. He seems like a decent guy to me, both him and Hugh Laurie. I think Emma Thompson and Hugh Laurie dated way back in the day, but I would really like to think that that they have been kind to Emma Thompson throughout because this was a pretty rocky era for her in 1994 and 1995. How did this happen? She was on top of the world, and yet she wasn't. The world was crushing her. So here's what was happening. She was In her 20s, she was doing comedy sketches, and then she was on a few British television series, winning awards. She spent 15 months on stage in a musical. She was big enough to have her own special called A Night with Emma... Well, no. It was A Night with Emma Thompson, but I think it was called Emma Thompson, Up for Grabs. She was in a play directed by Judi Dench, no less, and produced by Kenneth Branagh. And when they turned that play into a televised version, he took the part opposite hers. We are now up to 1989. Emma Thompson is turning 30, and the two of them spent the next few years 
like a supernova, <laughs> exploding like a supernova. They fell in love and got married. And for the next five years, look out. Ken and M, they were called, hugely famous in England. It's the Ken and M show, the tabloids would call it, using an ampersand for the M, for the and, I guess. <laughs> an EM for the M. This was like Beatlemania hitting England before it hit America. But soon enough, those records landed on American shores, didn't they? And we were infected too. And for the Ken and M show, the American version came through the movies. Six films that those two were in together. Henry V, which made Bronagh famous as the new Olivier and five other films, including Dead Again and Much Ado About Nothing. Meanwhile, Emma Thompson was cast in some enormous prestige films, Howard's End, based on the E.M. Forster novel, for which she won the Oscar for Best Actress, and The Remains of the Day with Anthony Hopkins, and In the Name of the Father. Her specialty, Roger Ebert said, was unrequited love. She was at the head of an onslaught of British films and actors. People like Hugh Grant and Anthony Hopkins, uh, Fry and Laurie, Kenneth Branagh, Richard Curtis, Ben Elton, Robbie Coltrane, Daniel Day-Lewis. She's working with all these people, all these men. As adaptations and period dramas have a moment, and they did have a moment from 1987 or so through 1990. Seven or so, 90s, she owned the female roles of a particular kind. Judy Dench, 25 years older than Emma Thompson. Helen Mirren, 14 years older. There's no one in that sweet spot of her 20s, late 20s, early 30s, but Emma Thompson. She owned the field. No British actor was as funny, as pretty, as youthful or had the acting chops of Emma Thompson, except perhaps one person, Helena Bonham Carter, who had starred in A Room with a View even before Emma Thompson became famous. Helena Bonham Carter was gorgeous. She was as successful, and she was seven years younger. She and Kenneth Branagh worked on a film together and started having an affair. And if Emma Thompson's specialty was unrequited love, Helena Bonham Carter's specialty was women breaking out of confinement, not enduring pain with patience, but seizing the moment. Dark-browed and stubborn, Roger Ebert called her, feisty. Ken and M, the Ken and M show, the mom and dad, and now the other woman. Helena Bonham Carter in the mix. The two women aren't sisters. They were rivals, but they appeared to be types. And Emma reminds us of Eleanor, and Helena Bonham Carter is like Marianne. It's undeniable. This is playing out in the real world, or in the tabloids, anyway. So, what did Emma do? She turned to work. Slaving away on the screenplay for years, on that rattle-trap old Apple computer that needed fixing sometimes, much as Eleanor sat at the table with receipts and budgets and her pencil trying to make sure the Dashwoods could pay their bills. Knowing that her marriage was over, 
Her golden period in the tabloids had given way to one where she wasn't the golden one with the enviable marriage, but the betrayed and long-suffering one cast aside for the younger firecracker. How can you leave Emma Thompson? But how could you not fall in love with Helena Bonham Carter? Did Ken trade in sense for sensibility? Was he a heel for doing so or just following his heart? As we always kind of hope the men will do in Jane Austen. Will true love prevail? But maybe it's the wrong kind of love. Impulsive love. A lightning flash. Not the steady glow that a marriage should have. That marriage with Emma Thompson. Kenneth Brownick, what were you doing? A lot of us were wrestling with questions like that in those days. It's too bad we didn't have a Jane Austen to help us make sense of it. Or maybe we did. Maybe Jane's novels do help us make sense of it. Let's take a look at sense and sensibility and see what's in there when we have an Eleanor and a Marianne and different men who are parading through. Let's see what happened to Emma Thompson as she immersed herself in this novel and its themes bringing them to the screen just as she struggled with her own collapsing personal life. We'll be focusing on Eleanor and Marianne, but we'll see if Emma's story ends happily, too. set forth law and life and all the challenges that were presented to the Dashwood women. But let's turn now to love. And in particular, let's see if love can overcome these obstacles and how so. But it's not as simple as saying the word love or that concept is what can remedy the ills posed by life and one's circumstances. There are different kinds of love. And there are different characters involved. What might make sense for one character might not necessarily make sense for another. And love involves a match with another human being. And that means more character comes into play. The character of that person. We are miles ahead of Romeo and Juliet in the complexity of love and what it means and how it can mean different things to different people. This isn't just youthful love, head over heels, an obstacle from a family, full stop. This is love in its richest and most mature form. Love at its early stages, perhaps, but not youthful. It's a mature view of love, and it's what makes Jane Austen the OG of romance novel writers. Okay, our first question is sense versus sensibility. Sensibility always takes me a moment to unpack because it's not how we use the word today. If someone is sensible, they're reasonable and rational. And what we mean here is the opposite. We mean passion. That's how it was used back then. Sentimental. Sensi sensibility was in the, it was sentimentality. Practical versus passionate is sense and sensibility. It's easy to look at Jane Austen and her world of inheritances and good matches and families finding sons for their daughters and vice versa and say, well, we've left practical behind. We're all passionate now. We're all on the side of love matches in the 21st century. 
not arranged marriages, but that's not really the case, is it? We believe in letting people choose for themselves. At least in America, we're not arranging marriages, though parents might put a thumb on the scale here and there. But within each mind and heart of a would-be lover is a whole range of practicality and passion. I've seen this over and over. How someone might agonize over a crush on someone who makes no sense to be tied to. Or the flip side, where someone says, this is the right person for me, even though he or she is not really my type physically. Or to say, this person is in the friend zone, but don't I want to marry my best friend? We communicate so well. I had a close friend in college who told me that he didn't think his parents had ever truly been in love, but that was okay. His view of marriage was that two people try to find love for a while, and if they don't ever find it, they match up with one another, good partners, and sometimes they're happier that way. They might be more compatible, and they have no illusions. There's nothing to fade. Better that for a marriage than a whirlwind passion and flaming out and decades of fighting or divorce, one might think. Maybe so. Maybe love settling in gently is better than hot love that flames out. And maybe certain kinds of people are better equipped for one type or the other. A month or two after my friend told me this, he proposed to the love of his life. And she turned him down. We're too young, she said. What are you thinking? But I love you, he said. I don't want to lose you. And she said, I don't know if I love you. I'm too young to know. I think I love you. I don't know if I want to marry you. I'm too young. It was the strangest thing. He didn't believe in true love necessarily, but he wanted to, to be someone who did. Or his love for her overwhelmed his previous feelings of what love was. Meanwhile, his girlfriend grew up always believing in true love, but she was letting practical considerations block her from loving him to the point of marriage. Neither of them had to worry about land or investment income or inheritance or how much they had. They were both on their way to being solid earners. My point here is that the themes of Jane Austen and practicality versus passion are still very current, even if the obstacles have changed. My other point here is that most people are round and not flat. Jane Austen captures this too. Even the most headstrong among us usually have some practical considerations in mind, and even the most ruthlessly practical see love as a good thing or can be overcome by love when Cupid lands one of his arrows. So we have Eleanor the quiet and reasonable one, the penny-pincher, the practical-minded older sister. She's all of 19 in the novel. Emma Thompson was 35 when she played her. That's not a bad thing. For those of us watching in the 20th and now 21st century, it's hard to accept that time might be running out on a 19-year-old, a little bit closer to that midnight-striking age of 40, gives us a stronger sense today of what a Jane Austen heroine was facing. We know that for the Dashwoods, life has presented them with problems and men can solve them. Would-be suitors are the potential answer to some of these problems, the money problems. The same is true today. It can be, but we don't like to think of it that way. Maybe because we know that marrying for money can cause problems of inequality and self-esteem. We want our relationships 
to be on equal terms for the most part. And if someone marries into wealth, the more privileged spouse or his or her family might make the pauper feel bad and might pressure the pauper into doing things that he or she doesn't really want to do. Plus, women today have the option of working far more than Jane's characters did. So what we usually say today, instead of putting our female characters in the position of needing to solve injustices by marrying for money and somehow trying to find love in the bargain, the way we usually have it styled is a woman tries to find a perfect career or at least a job and also tries to find a fulfilling love. Movies that lean too hard on a contemporary Cinderella story, a woman marrying a rich man and becoming a princess, like Pretty Woman, are usually criticized as fairy tales, not realistic. In any way, not how we want society to be organized. But for Jane Austen, assessing the world around her, that's not how life worked. She was proud of her literary earnings and confessed that a taste of a little made her want more. But this was frowned upon. Her book said it was by a lady, in part because her social set did not approve of a woman writing for money. Too vulgar. Okay, so we have the Dashwoods in need of a man with a fortune. Nothing really turns up for the grieving widow. The youngest daughter is too young. It's left to Eleanor and Marianne, daughter number one and daughter number two, and a few potential options parade through the narrative. Three men of varying fortune, all of them harboring a secret. First is Edward, the brother of the nemesis Fanny, the woman who now runs their former estate, the one who kept them down by preventing her husband from being generous toward them. He, Edward, forms an attachment to Eleanor. The two of them are very sweet together, in fact. His secret, however, is that as a young man, he became secretly engaged to a woman named Lucy Steele. The family would object to this arrangement because Lucy Lucy Steele is broke, so he can't marry her, but he feels obliged to her. He'll even endure being disowned rather than break his obligation because his sense of duty is great. This is Hugh Grant in the movie. Handsome, good hair, good teeth, dimples, He stammers and smiles in his polite and charming way and captures Eleanor's heart. But she can't have him because of Lucy. And Lucy confides this engagement to her, which means Eleanor has to live with a heartbreaking secret. Her own sense of duty and honor won't let her undermine the engagement between Edward and Lucy or even share the secret with her sister. Up next, Colonel Brandon, a fairly old man at the age of 35. He's played by Alan Rickman. Ah, Alan Rickman. My goodness, I watched the Harry Potter movies again this Christmas. It's becoming a tradition for our family to watch the the run of them when we have snow days and snow on, and we watch Die Hard every year, too. Alan Rickman's in that, Hans Gruber. Is Alan Rickman the most watchable actor of our time, watchable and rewatchable. He's not pretty boy handsome like Hugh Grant. By the way, speaking of pretty boy handsome, the Jane Austen Society apparently wrote a letter to the filmmakers when news got out that Hugh Grant had been cast as Edward because they thought he was too handsome to play Edward. <laughs> it's a bit of miscasting. It's not true to the novel. We object. It's kind of funny. One can imagine 
Emma Thompson standing up for Eleanor and saying, damn it, this is a film. The whole thing's visual. It's Hollywood. We can let Eleanor get the dream boat, can't we? Too handsome. This was before the scandal that made Hugh Grant kind of a goofy figure for a while. I liked him then, and I liked how he handled that whole mess, and I still like him. He's not Alan Rickman intense, but he's always someone I like to see on the screen. Okay, you have to understand, as I trip my trip over myself running through these characters and these actors, that for literature fans who were around in the 90s, this was kind of a golden era for movies. We had E.M. Forster adaptations and Jane Austen adaptations and Henry James adaptations and lots of films like The End of the Affair and Remains of the Day and Shadowlands and Carrington and so on that were period dramas, maybe from the 20th century, and they had adult themes of love and loss. The actors and directors and writers of these films all mattered to us. We were enjoying ourselves immensely. Okay, so Colonel Brandon, we were on him. His secret is that he was once in love with a young woman named Eliza. She was passionate, much like Marianne. His family objected, and he was sent off abroad in the military, which was a maneuver to block him from marrying Eliza. While he was gone, she fell into hard times and died. She had an illegitimate daughter before she died, and Brandon, when he comes home, he takes care of this daughter. She becomes kind of a award of his. He did this out of a sense of loyalty and regret for how things had gone with his true love, Eliza. He's a decent person. And in the book, he falls in love with Marianne. He's also, he's a lot like Eleanor, practical and wise, but he has a soft spot for passion. Marianne would complete him in a way that Eleanor wouldn't. The problem for him is that Marianne's heart has been swept away by another. Marianne was out on a walk in the rain, which is that timeless trope of people who love nature and are willing to take risks in nature. The sense in us keeps us home when the skies are dark or there's a nip in the air. The passionate among us say, oh, but we can't live without fresh air or oh, I love the lightning or the snow won't stop me. I'm from Wisconsin. Or maybe that's getting a little too personal, but you know what I mean. Marianne falls down and hurts her ankle while she's out there in the meadow or on the moor, whatever you would call it. And a man suddenly comes to rescue her, and he turns out to be the dashing John Willoughby. He's a lot like Marianne. They are two peas in a pod. They love poetry. They love feeling. They want to live life on the edge, take risks, be alive, fall in love. But he's also a bit of a philanderer. Marianne wants excitement. She doesn't want old and boring and staid and practical. But guess what? Exciting can also mean erratic. And Willoughby ends up getting all squirrely on the Dashwoods. Money and prospects affect the men as much as the women in Jane Austen books. And recall that this is what happened to Jane and Tom Lafroy in real life. Neither of them had money. His family said, no deal. And Tom Lafroy ditched Jane. Good 
God, I'm tearing up thinking about these people who lived and died hundreds of years ago. This is not normal. I recognize, I acknowledge, but whatever, I guess. I'm too old to change now. So all of these issues are still alive today. When you search for a life partner, do you find one who's just like you? Is that a good idea? Or do you find one who completes you in some way? Well, Marianne is faced with that. In her choice between the two, Willoughby is a lot like her. And Colonel Brandon is unlike her. Which one is better for her? She kind of changes her mind during the book. And Brandon, he has the same sort of decision. He probably could have become a suitor of Eleanor. That would have been a good match in many ways. But he had this yearning for someone who had a little more open zest for life. Like Eliza had been when she was young and like Marianne was now. So... Is it good? Is this, what do you do, listener? Is it, what do you think? Is it good for someone who's shy to marry an extrovert and say, oh, well, she'll keep him out and about meeting people. It's good to bring him out of his shell. Or is it better for that shy guy to marry someone similar? No friction there. Those two can live quietly and happily. They'll see things eye to eye. They won't disappoint one another. They match, they fit. We all face this decision. We all have these issues of money. We'll say he's a kindergarten teacher. It's what he was born to do. But he's also a native New Yorker, and it's hard to live in New York on a teacher's salary. But look, she's a corporate lawyer. She has enough money for both. Or the two of them, we might see another couple and say, the two of them don't have money, but they don't really need money. They live simply and they don't want children. They're living the dream, working part-time and raising chickens in the backyard. All of this can work. Money has to be sorted out. Different people have different needs and there are endlessly different ways for these relationships to work. Happy and unhappy couples are all different. In spite of what Tolstoy might say, Jane Austen would see it differently. She would say, I can find find room for a novel in happiness and as well as unhappiness. So the other issues that we still deal with today, slightly modified, are these questions of honor and duty and commitments to others, obligations we make, promises. A friend of mine met his girlfriend at a party. She was dating another man at the time, and she cheated on that guy with my friend that night, and he was infatuated with her, but over time, he began to feel that maybe she was going to cheat on him too. He'd seen what her character was capable of. Maybe people grow, maybe they learn from their mistakes, or maybe you see them for what they are, and that's a sign that they're going to let you down. And in this case, in Sense and Sensibility, You also see signs that people are not going to let you down. When two people are willing to honor their commitments, you see how honorable they are. It just takes a bit of plot maneuvering by the author to straighten out the commitments and let the honorables find one another. It's like untangling the knots of a shoelace so the ends are free to be tied in a more harmonious unison. And there's another theme here that we still have today, 
sisterly love. That's one of the most beautiful parts of Jane's life, her love for her sister Cassandra and vice versa. And it's in the book too, the way Marianne and Eleanor care for and complete one another. And the movie captures it as well. In that clip that started, we started the episode with, it's not Eleanor weeping at the end, it's Marianne. She's weeping for Eleanor. And it's out of understanding and affection. They're different, but the same, but different. It's not just, I love my sister and would do anything for her, and leaving it there. It's much more psychologically complex. The characters are more complex and dynamic, and the observations made by Jane are sharper. During a moment when the communication between them breaks down, Marianne says to Eleanor, We have neither of us anything to tell, you because you do not communicate, and I because I conceal nothing. How good is that? They wind up in the same place. They take completely opposite directions, completely opposite paths, and they wind up in the same place. The sisterly difference leads us to that place. It's hard on a sleeve and stiff upper lip. Both women risk misery in love. The passion that bursts forth can lead one into making grievous mistakes, causing great pain. But the passion that remains stifled can wither and die, which is also painful. It's like the the decision of calling after a date, or maybe today it's texting. You text 50 times, you look like a madman, driving her away. Text zero times, and nothing will happen. Either way, you end up alone and unhappy. Okay, the last theme on my list is one I've already touched upon a bit, the bright flame of passion versus the steady glow of a candle. I remember going to the a funeral of a man in town whom everybody had loved and who died shockingly young. The funeral was an event. They held a, they held a service in the high school gymnasium for the hundreds of people who came. And the friend of the deceased who spoke was a middle-aged man who talked about whether it's better for a leaf to die in late summer, still green, one of the first to fall from the tree, or whether it's best to hang on to the end, remaining alone on the branch, becoming crisp and brittle, feeling colder, and then landing on the ground when all of your companions have been already swept away. We can say this about love, too. Is it better to have a moment of color that ends quickly, or to have a long, less vibrant feeling that lasts a lifetime. That's why I love Jane Austen and why the movie, when it lands like Sense and Sensibility does, is still so wonderful and makes me cry my eyes out. I won't tell you how it, well, you might want to go watch it. But it's the scene with Emma Thompson at the end and I see it as Eleanor, Marianne's Eleanor, and I see it as Emma the actress who's dealing with what she's been dealing with too, and it breaks my heart. All of these issues of love and money are still with us. The obstacles and overcomings are different now, and yet they've stayed recognizably the same. We don't have landed estates, most of us, but money 
can still be an issue in family expectations. Maybe we don't say, well, if he's not a virgin, then I can't marry him. And if there's a shocking secret, we don't say he's been immoral, he's a bad person, cross him off. But if he's treated someone badly, we wonder about whether that's a deal breaker. And we do judge. We might not judge by the same exact standards, but we judge people for their conduct. Advice columns are full of questions like these. It's not, oh, he had an illegitimate child, so he's tainted and immoral and a sinner, but I love him, so what should I do? It's more like, I found out that this guy had an affair with a coworker and got her fired. Or, I found out that my fiancé and his friends used to cyberbully a gay friend of theirs. He says he's over that now. He doesn't, he thinks differently. What do I do? Or, my fiancé told me he was going to the gym, and instead, he went to a park and spent an hour texting an old flame. Hmm, what do you do? It's not about sins or morality. It's not... Well, he had premarital sex, so that means I can't marry him now. It's about, he did this thing that makes me wonder if I could ever trust him. Or, should I forgive? Is it true that he's learned from his mistakes? Everybody makes them, after all. Is this small enough that I would regret not overlooking it? Or is it big enough that I would forever regret not taking it seriously? We have a million questions like that now. Or this question, I know a secret about my sister's fiancé. You see that in advice columns all the time, right? Where you can imagine an Eleanor wondering this about a Marianne, or vice versa. My friend's in love, and I happen to know that the guy she's in love with was hitting on his neighbor last summer when my friend was out of town. Or he made a pass at me, and should I tell her? He was drunk. He says it was a one-time thing. But even so, what should I do? Or maybe the question comes later in the narrative. I told my friend what happened, and now she hates me. Should I tell her this other secret so she knows what kind of guy he really is? Or should I let her live in ignorance? I don't want to ruin her happiness. But what if he does something bad? What if he's just a... Shouldn't she know the truth about him and what he's capable of? Jane Austen would be nodding and observing all of this. It's her world of emotional pitfalls. Even if we're not in the world of dowries and expectations and so on, we have plenty of deal breakers and they're just as raw and powerful and dramatic. I had a friend who had a bitter breakup over the issue of travel. She lived in California. Her mom lived by herself in Chicago. And trips home to Chicago for my friend from California to Chicago were important to her. Her fiancé didn't want to fly back so often and didn't want her to go as often as she did. And said it costs a lot of money to make those flights. Well, they broke up over that. And now she was back on the dating scene and for her, travel to Chicago was, or the refusal to travel to Chicago was a deal breaker. Oh, you hate to fly? Let's not go farther. Goodbye. <laughs> we live in this world where a single person can make us happy. We all want that to be the case. That's in the book, too. This desire we have to believe that a single person can make us happy. 
if we find the right person. We all want to find the right person, but there might be more possible right people too. There will always be what ifs and roads not taken and ones who got away. Jane had them too in her art and in her life. So would we say that Jane is sense or sensibility? Well, it would be a mistake to try to pin her down like that, just as it would be a mistake to think that the Dashwood sisters are all one or all the other. Jane had both, both sides. She was a very round character. Most of us do. Some combination of sense and sensibility. Paul writes lyrics and John writes melodies. We all feel passion. We all can be limited by our sense of propriety and logic and rationality and limits. James, James, here's a, Jane's brother James said this about her. Quote, he wrote a little poem about her. Quote, on such subjects, no wonder that she should write well in whom so united those qualities dwell where dear sensibility, Stern's darling maid, with sense so attempered is finely portrayed. Fair Eleanor's self in that mind is expressed, and the feelings of Marianne live in that breast. End quote. What a nice little poem for James Austin to write about his sister Jane. That's so sweet that he... <laughs> He pays tribute to Sense and Sensibility and Eleanor and Marianne. And it says to his, says, you know what? If you're talking about my sister Jane, she had both. Lots of it. Lots of sense and lots of sensibility. And of course she did. That's what novelists, they're great sold when they're as great as Jane Austen. Okay, for Emma Thompson, let's spend a moment with her. As 1994 rolls around, she's an Oscar winner, and yet she's miserable. She's been betrayed by Mr. Bronick, the Ken of Ken and M. She plunges into the world of Jane Austen, an old childhood favorite, to work on this screenplay. Her pal, Stephen Fry, comes over and saves it from whatever computer failures they were facing. Ang Lee, the director from Taiwan, shows up to direct the film, kind of a surprise director for a British period drama, and for him, for his first English film, but he turns out to be amazing. Kate Winslet works her way into the part of Marianne. She turns out to be a perfect choice, and Emma, on the set, becomes a kind of big sister to Kate. Kate is worried about her appearance on the screen and worried that she looks too heavy and she starts having some issues around eating, and Emma notices and says, don't make yourself so thin. It's wrong for the character, and it's wrong for you. What a perfect Eleanor thing to say to a Marianne. And apparently the two have been good friends ever since. And the rest of the cast is perfect. I mentioned Hugh Laurie and Hugh Grant and Alan Rickman. Imelda Staunton is in here. You probably know her as Dolores Umbridge. And Harriet Walter whom you might know as the mother in succession, plays Fanny. All of, the, all of these actors are so good. But what do you do when you have a Hugh Grant and an Alan Rickman in a film and you need to cast a Willoughby? Willoughby is supposedly the most dashing of all the characters. How do you get someone more compelling than those two? Well, 
It's not easy. And here's the incredible story. They find an actor named Greg Wise. He wasn't as famous as Grant or Rickman. He'd been in some TV movies, but he was pretty handsome, I have to say. And he got the after he got the part, he went to see an acquaintance of his, whom I've later read, described as a somewhat witchy person. And this acquaintance made a prediction. You will meet your future partner on this film. So he lands, he gets on set, and he says, look at this. My love interest is Kate Winslet. This was pre-Titanic. She was not quite the superstar that she was, but she was an actress. She was young and pretty. Greg Wise, handsome, handsome enough to be cast as Willoughby. And the two of them started dating. And she seemed a little bored, and he wasn't sure what that meant. Maybe the prediction was wrong because the other possible woman on the set was Emma Thompson, but she was seven years older than Greg Wise and, of course, still married. And then they do the rain scene and Kate got really cold and Emma and Greg were working to help her get warm and Kate noticed that Emma and Greg... We're flirting with one another. Remember, Emma is just coming off this tremendous betrayal and breakup. She's plunged into work with a broken heart. She's 35, not sure if she'll find love again. It's Ken and M minus Ken. It's just M. All of this is going into her performance. And suddenly, here's a Willoughby. Her ex, Kenneth, has his Marianne, Helena Bottom Carter, but Eleanor slash Emma has found her Edward, or maybe it's her Willoughby, and he's the one, the actor playing Willoughby in her movie. And Emma doesn't need to wait around for a man's fortune because here we go. She's not only a successful actress. Hugely in demand, she wins the Oscar for her screenplay. She can do anything now. She's an actor. She's an artistic success. She's fully independent. And she's in love, too. She and Greg Wise, the actor who played Willoughby, ended up together. They had kids together. And, listener, they're still together. Happily ever after. She's a legend now, Emma Thompson, an icon, a dame, a national treasure, an artist's artist. Without seeming too remote, she just seems smart and down to earth and funny, except she's supernaturally talented and accomplished. But this was her at the moment of sense and sensibility. She was devastated, and then she found her fella. And all this, the seeds of all this, this change is happening to her, the actor, the person, the real life person, as it's happening to her character, Eleanor, on the screen. And in the end, she weeps with happiness and the whole thing just tears me to pieces. I weep like a schoolgirl. I would say, except schoolgirls don't weep the way I do. 
In this, I weep like a middle-aged podcaster. A particularly odd one. <laughs> An odd duck who cares about this stuff way too much, maybe. Or maybe not. I've seen enough love and enough lovers and enough love stories in my day to appreciate how much pleasure and how much pain that love can bring. There's something so human in this love and in this letting go when it's time for that, too. I've never met Emma Thompson, and I'm too old to think I really know what life is like for her. All these celebrities have images, and we get glimpses of their lives and parts of, you know, portions of their narrative and so on, but it's not necessarily real. I've been fooled a lot. Hello, Bill Cosby and all those others. Tiger Woods, all these people who did not have the lives that I thought they were having. I hope she's happy. She seems happy. She makes me happy anyway. And I would like to think that she's gotten as much out of life as she deserves. And that's how I feel about Jane. She didn't make as much from her books in her lifetime as she should have, and I wish she'd have had more years on earth and more success in love and life. But she has inspired so many smiles and filled so many hearts everywhere in the world and for more than 200 years. That those 750 copies of Sense and Sensibility the book has never been out of print since then. Do I think Jane Austen was the happiest person who ever lived? Probably not, at least judging from the outside. But she was she a great giver of happiness? Undoubtedly, she was. I would even go so far as to say that Jane Austen is on a very short list of people who did not give just some happiness but a lot of happiness. And I'll go even farther than that and say that it wasn't just a lot of happiness, but the most. Is Jane Austen the greatest giver of happiness of all time? It's impossible to say definitively, of course, but I would say she's on the list of candidates, and it's a very short list indeed. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Dame Emma and Ang Lee and all the others who made me so happy rewatching Sense and Sensibility this time around. Alan Rickman. Oh my goodness, I'm so sorry we're losing people like that. And my thanks to Jane Austen. Maybe she and Alan enjoyed a cup of tea. Up there in heaven, that would not be a bad party to join. And my thanks to you, dear listeners, for joining me today. Please do subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. We have a Pride and Prejudice episode episode, episode back in our archives, if you'd like to check that out. Hopefully I didn't just repeat myself miserably in this episode. And we have a two-parter, or maybe a three-parter, on Jane Austen and Tom LaFroy. If you'd like to read about Jane or listen to stories about Jane in love. Speaking of love, well, that's not such a good transition for a goodbye, is it? Speaking of love, goodbye forever. <laughs> goodbye until next time. No. So how about this? Speaking of love, I do not love saying goodbye, but it is time, and that is life. 
I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. You might know about climate change, but do you know how it's changing life on our coasts? I'm Carlisle Calhoun, co-host of Sea Change, the award-nominated podcast from WWNO, New Orleans Public Radio, and PRX. Each episode, we dive deep into the environmental issues facing coastal communities, bringing you stories that go beyond the headlines, from species under threat to climate migration. Because we have a lot to save, and it's time to talk about a sea change. Listen to new episodes of Sea Change wherever you get your podcasts.